This is the second in the six-part series entitled Love, Grow, Serve. And the, the first two messages are on love, and the next two messages are on grow, and then the last two messages will be on serving God. And each one of these has uh, a dual connection, right? It has a vertical connection and a horizontal connection, a co connection with God and a connection with others, right? A connection with the cross and a connection with the world. And so we love God and people. We grow in relationship with God and with others and serve God and the community. And so this is who we are. This is what we do, all right? And uh, it's my hope that this idea so grabs us and captures us that whenever anyone in Lancaster hears about First Assembly, say, they say, man, that is a church that is full of love. And they say, that, you know, that's a church that's really about growing. And that's a church that, I mean, they serve like nobody's business. And so now, how many of you remember from last week that there's a scriptural basis for this? Right? I didn't just take it out of the, I just didn't get it, you know, after I ate too many tacos. Right? There's a, there's a scriptural, scriptural basis for this. How many of you remember what it is? Anyone? What it is? Yes, right, right, in case, uh, a hint, in case you forgot, it's on the banners behind me, Ephesians 4.15, and uh, also there's 15, uh, 16 and 15 as well, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The body of Christ grows, builds itself up in love, and each part does its work. That's love, grow, serve. So this is God's plan. This is God's vision for the body of Christ. It's what he wants us to be about. It's what he wants us to be doing. And so this week, we're going to be taking, talking about the, um, the second part of the Great Commitment. Last week, we talked about that first part, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. So this morning, we're talking about the second part. Loving people. So if you could turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting at verse 28 and going through verse 31 again. And as you turn there, let me ask you, what does love look like to you? I mean, on a practical, everyday basis, what does love look like to you? You know, someone asked a group of children that, uh, what love was like. And, and sometimes children have the most amazing perspective, don't they? And so here I have these answers to these from several children when they ask them, what is love like? So Danny, age seven, said, love is when mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving to him to make sure that the taste is okay. Right? It kind of reminds me of when we were first married. Uh, Jill used to make me a, a sandwich for lunch every day and I'd open it and there would be a bite already out of it. And basically she's, she's trying to tell me that she loves me. That's what was going on there. And then uh, Christopher said this. He said, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Brad Pitt. <laughs> you know, Jill and I have this thing going on, too, like this, you know, because uh, a lot of times in the summer, I'll, I'll be out mowing the lawn and doing all the yard work, and I come in, and I'm all sweaty and smelly. And I think that's the perfect time for Jill to give me a hug. And uh, why are you all laughing? Because, I mean... Because when Rocky finished that fight, he was all sweaty and dirty, smelly and all that, and Adrian came and gave him a hug. Right, yeah. <laughs> See, I know some of these guys know what I'm talking about. So I think that's the perfect, she doesn't agree, but I think she still loves me anyway. Uh, Noel, age seven, said, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. So 
So ladies, if your husband has worn the same shirt every day this week, it's because he loves you. Right? I, none of the ladies said amen to that. Guys think differently than girls. Terry said this, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. All right? Stephen said this, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. All right, that's a good one, isn't it? Billy said this, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Boy, I like that. And then the last one, Bobby said this, Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Oh, isn't that great? I mean, that if you can stop, whenever you stop in your daily life and, uh, and what you hear sounds like love, that's awesome. That's what I wish for all of you, that whenever you stop and listen, uh, what you hear sounds like love. You know, children sometimes have some great ideas about what love is, and Jesus also has some great, awesome ideas about what love is. So this morning, my friends, let's see what we can unpack together, um, some of what Jesus said about love, and see if there are some things that we can apply to our lives as Jesus followers, okay? So uh, would you pray with me? All right, would you say this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, give me ears to hear what you're saying to me. Give me eyes to see what you're doing in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's begin to unpack this this morning in Mark chapter 12. Uh, you know, they had asked Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is the most important one? And Jesus answered them, beginning in verse 29, the, of course, the most important one is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. But then he went on to say, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So as we come to this text this morning, you know, you may remember last week's message that you know, Jesus had been responding to several different questions from the Pharisees, you know, about paying taxes to Caesar and about the resurrection from the dead, and they just didn't seem to get what was really important. And finally, someone asked Jesus about what the greatest commandment of the law was, and Jesus answered uh, with this commandment from the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, you know, we talked about this last week, and by the way, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go to our website, our new website, firstassembly.com or .net, and, and get the message there. Or you can download it on iTunes. Boy, that was a shameless commercial, wasn't it? All right. I encourage you to do that and let other people know about it. Then, but then when Jesus went on next, he answered the questions, what is the next most important commandment? In other words, um, they didn't ask the question, but Jesus went on and answered a question that they didn't ask. Don't you love that about Jesus? I mean, sometimes he just, he just answers questions that you weren't asking. And, and so there are times when Jesus has an agenda in my life. Jesus has an agenda in your life. And if we're not getting to it, he'll just go there. And here, they didn't, uh, they didn't go to that second question, but it was on Jesus' agenda to go there. They only asked him about the first one, but he wanted them to get to the next one as well because it is also so important. So important that Jesus tied it to the first commandment. So important that Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So if you fulfill these two commandments, you will be fulfilling all of God's requirements. Say, that's good news, isn't it? I mean, that's awesome because there's more than 600 direct commands in the Old Testament. How many of you have all of them memorized? 
600 commands, but Jesus says that they boil down to just these two to remember. And so by, by tying it to the first one, Jesus kind of makes this second one non-optional. How many of you like optional commands? I mean, sometimes, I know uh, you approach your parents that way when you're kids, right? There are optional commands and non-optional commands. You know, and you're listening for the tone of voice. And when the tone of voice reaches a certain uh, pitch, right, then that's when you know, okay, this is not non-optional anymore. I mean, this is not optional. This is now non-optional. Some people approach their bosses that way, right, just trying to, to do the least amount to, to, to get by, right? Now, I don't encourage you to do that. I encourage Christians to be the best workers on the job, right? But some people approach their bosses that way. Can I encourage you? You know, if you've ever approached your parents that way or even if you approach your boss that way, don't approach Jesus that way. He doesn't have non-optional, uh, he doesn't have optional commands, only non-optional ones. Uh, and he makes this one non-optional by tying it to the first. And, and not only are they non-optional, but they're also inseparable. John said it this way. He said, whoever claims, now put your seatbelts on, okay? Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. Now, can I, that's some strong language, isn't it? And I mean, someone might ask, you know, Pastor Paul, are you saying that if I don't love my brothers and sisters and I don't love God, you know, how dare you say that? But can I tell you, I'm just the messenger this morning. I didn't, I didn't make this stuff up, right? This is, this is God's testimony about it. This is what, what God has to say about it. So if someone says, you know, God, I, I really want to love you and I really love you, but I'm just not going to love this guy over here. God, I'm just not going to love this woman over here, right? If you say that to God... If you're going to tell God that you love him but you hate other people or that, that, that he has redeemed or you're going to, to live in hate and anger and unforgiveness towards people that God has redeemed, God says, you really don't love me. That's what he says about it. You can't have one without the other. If you're going to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, then part of that, an inseparable part of that, is loving your neighbor as yourself. So what does that look like? What does loving your neighbor as yourself look like? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Okay, let's unpack that a little bit together. But we're going to look at just two groups of people that God wants us to love. Okay, so dear friends, these are the two groups of people that God wants you to have love for, that God is speaking about this morning. He wants us first to love the body of Christ. God wants us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, we need to begin by loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Turn to John chapter 13, if you will. And as you get there here, we're at the Last Supper. John spends about five chapters on the Last Supper. And as you read these chapters, you can't help but get a sense for Jesus' deep, amazing love for his disciples and for Jesus' passion to see them become what God wants them to be. And he, and he said that with strong desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And he talks a lot about the love that he and the Father have for one another. And he talks a lot about the love that he has for the disciples. And in the midst of all of this, you begin to get this sense that one of the things that is on Jesus' heart is the concern for how they interact with one another, how they treat and view one another. And so at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus does something shocking. They're in the middle of a meal, 
And all of a sudden, Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, dressing like a common servant, and he takes a towel and a water basin and begins to wash their feet. Now, the custom was, the custom of the day was that when you entered a house, a servant would come and wash your feet. And, and this meant something in that day. Today, that might not mean something to us. You'd think, well, that would be weird, you know, if someone came and washed your feet. But back then, when they walked around all day in sandals on dusty roads, there were no paved roads, your, your feet would get very dirty and caked with dust and dirt and mud. And so um, when you entered a house that you were going to stay for a while, um, they would uh, wash your feet. It was just a normal thing to do, kind of like saying, can I take your coat? You know, someone would come and wash your feet. But here... At this gathering, there are no servants there to do that. It's just Jesus and the 12. And so as they enter, nobody has it on their mind to wash anybody else's feet. Because why would they do that? I mean, they had often been given to arguing about who was the greatest. Which one of them was the greatest? And uh, so for one of them to wash the other's feet, it would be a declaration that they're the greater ones, that I'm the servant, that I'm the lesser, and that they're the greater. And and. So why would Peter wash James and John's feet? I mean, just recently, James and John had asked to sit at either the left or the right hand of Jesus. And all of them were indignant about that, right? They were offended by that. And so if Peter were to, to wash James and John's feet, that would be like saying, okay, Jesus, go ahead and put them in those places. And, uh, and why would James wash Andrew's feet? Because that would be saying that, that, that Andrew is the greater one. And so, and so they all had the same kind of attitude. And, uh, and, and, and so here's the picture. This is supposed to be... A lovely meal. But here they are, they're all reclining at the table, it says. And, and by that, if you know the culture, tables that they had back then, they weren't like our tables. They weren't like this high with chairs you would pull up. They were very low to the ground, like maybe six inches or a foot off of the ground. And, and, and so people would then recline it. There would be pillows around the table, and people would, would recline at the table. That's what it means uh, when, it, when it says that. And so here they are, they're reclining at the table in Jesus' presence with disgusting dirty, smelly feet just sticking up the room and grabbing attention. All these feet kind of up near the table. Now this is a perfect metaphor, I think. Perfect illustration or picture of what their sinful, self-centered, self-focused, me-first, prideful attitude looked like in the spiritual realm. And this is just what it looks like to Jesus when his people approach others with a me-first, self-first Un unloving, I'm the greatest attitude. It's like smelly feet at a dinner table to Jesus. And a church that's characterized by these attitudes is like a banquet that is filled with people with disgusting, smelly feet. And what does Jesus do to smelly feet? He washes them, right? So no one else is doing it, so Jesus gets up and he washes their feet. Can you say awkward? I mean... I mean, this is really, really awkward. I mean, because all of them knew that if there was anyone there that shouldn't be washing anybody's feet, that it was Jesus. But here Jesus gets up and washes their feet, and, and it was so awkward that Peter even tries to stop him. He says, never, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. And in the end, Jesus asks them, he said, do you understand what I have done for you. Do you understand this? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and that's right, because that's what I am. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. Now, now that I have done this for you, now that I have set an example for you, you should do as I have done. 
you should treat one another the same way. You all say you want to be the greatest? Well, then the greatest among you will be the servant of all, the one who puts others before themselves. And Jesus is driving at something. He's driving at their motivations. He's, he's driving at how they treat one another, how they view one another. And so the meal continues, and just a few verses later, verse 33, Jesus says this. Now, now, now feel, feel what's happening here as Jesus says this. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus sees that he's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. He's about to be crucified and, and then be resurrected. And then he would ascend to heaven. And they might look for him, but they wouldn't be able to find him. They, they would not be able to see him anymore. And so this is some of the last teaching that Jesus is going to be able to do with his disciples. That, that's the idea here. Is that This is the, some of the last things that Jesus is going to be able to say to his disciples. And what's on Jesus' heart in this moment what is important to Jesus as he considers that these are some of his last moments with them? Let's read it in the next verse, verse 34. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now stop there for a second. Why does he call this command new? I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, there were Old Testament scriptures that talked about loving your neighbor. I mean, surely they had heard some of these before, right? And uh, um, as a matter of fact, just like the first commandment was a quotation from the law, from the, from the Shema, the second commandment was also a quotation from the law. It comes from Leviticus 19.18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. They had heard this before, and uh, Jesus had often taught about love and forgiveness, and surely they had heard all this. And not only that, just a couple days before, Jesus had said to love your neighbor as yourself. They heard all of this. So why is this a new commandment? And, and I think the answer lies in what Jesus sees is coming, in what Jesus sees is now at hand. Before, he had taught them about loving one another. He even rebuked them. At one point, when they were arguing about who was the greatest, it says he, he got a child and, and stood them, uh, the child amongst them and said, unless you change and become like this child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. But, but it all had little effect. It didn't seem to, uh, to reach their hearts. They kept on arguing and fighting and pushing to be first, and they, they kept on being self-centered and self-focused and self-loving without much love for each other, right up until the last supper as they all sat there with their stinky feet not willing to humble themselves, not willing to serve each other, not willing to consider others as worthy of honor. But now, in light of what is about to happen, in light of the crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit, in view of all these things that are about to happen, Jesus can give them a new command. Love one another. Not new in the sense of having never heard it before, but new in the sense of now I'm giving you a new way of living. Now for the first time, you are going to have the power, the ability to love one another the way you should. The way the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. The way the Son loves the disciples. Now you will have the ability to love one another. He's saying, I'm giving this to you. I'm doing this for you. As I have, then, he, then he goes further. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
Because of the amazing sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross, we can love one another. Because of the coming outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we can be empowered to finally fulfill this command to love one another. What they failed miserably to do on their own, they would now be able to do because of the indwelling, overflowing power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The same God who redeemed me redeemed you. The same Holy Spirit who lives in me lives in you. The same God who forgives me forgives you. The same God who transforms me into the image of Christ is transforming you into the image of Christ. The same Holy Spirit who indwells me and fills me and dwells and fills you. And because that same Holy Spirit lives in me and lives in you. This is why John could say that you can't love God and hate your brother. Because you can't possibly love the Spirit of God in you and hate him in your brother or sister. And then he goes on and says something even more amazing. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now that, can I tell you, that is breathtaking. Don't, don't, don't skip over this verse. That is breathtaking in its scope. How do you make the world know that you are Jesus' disciple? You love one another. God has given unbelievers only one method, only one criteria for evaluating whether or not we are the real deal, whether we're really disciples of the Lord Jesus, and it's if we love one another. Now, there may be other methods that God uses to evaluate us or that we can use to evaluate ourselves, right? Things like the uh, walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh or growing in grace, uh, growing in the knowledge of God, but unbelievers can't evaluate all of that. They don't have a reference point to evaluate all of that, but they do understand love. You know, and I, I can think of a number of times when I'd be sharing Christ with somebody and, uh, and in the middle of that, they'd stop and they'd remember somebody from their past and say, you know, so-and-so from their past, uh, they were the real deal. They were a real, genuine Christian. And, and as I would push out a little further and ask them to explain that, inevitably the story goes something about how much they loved people. That's the criteria that God has given them to know. That's what they understand. So when Christians are full of love, the world gets it. The world understands that. And can I say, you know, as I was preparing this message, I, I, I felt an anointing of God to, to, to say two things. First, that God bless so many of you who express so much love for each other, so much kindness towards each other. God sees that. God wants you to know he sees that when you do that, and he's pleased with that. But at the same time, as I was preparing, I felt this anointing to maybe reach out to some of you that I don't know, I don't have anyone on my mind, but as if the Holy Spirit was saying that there may be one or a few of you struggling with loving somebody in the body of Christ. I don't know if you've been hurt or something has happened to you, or, or you're, but you're nearing a place where uh, you're beginning to accept and even normalize feelings of anger and unforgiveness beginning to accept an absence of love and even gathering injustices maybe and making them normal in your life. And I believe God is saying this morning, can you put a pause on that for a moment? Can you just put a pause on that for a moment? He's saying, you know, I want you to stop going down that road. If you're going down that road, if you've got somebody that, 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 that you're just having difficulty with loving, difficulty with forgiving, and you're getting to a place where you're starting to normalize that and say, well, that's just normal, that's acceptable. God is saying, stop for a moment. 
turn from that. Don't embrace anger. Don't embrace unforgiveness. Don't collect grievances. It'll turn you into something that you don't want to be. Instead, turn from that. Lay it all down at Jesus' feet and determine to live in love. Love the body of Christ. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then secondly, the second group of people God wants you to love is all people. Love those outside the body of Christ. That just about covers everybody, doesn't it? So one day, Jesus was ministering, and he's, he's somewhere on his way to Jerusalem. And you can find this story in Luke chapter 10 if you want to follow along. And it says an expert in the law uh, stood up to test Jesus. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus turns the question back on him, and he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he replies by saying, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know if he had heard Jesus say that sometime previous or if he really knew that from studying the law. I don't know. But, but either way, um, Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And the man should have just stopped there, right? He should have just stopped there and let it go um, and said, you know, uh, he should have just let it go there. Because everybody who is going, wow, Jesus said it's a good answer. Everybody's applauding. Yay, good answer. You know, if this had been some type of hipster poetry reading, they'd all be snapping their fingers like this and going, like this. you know, he should have just stopped there. But he couldn't let it lie there. Look at verse 29. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And you just want to say, oh, snap. <laughs> you know, why did he do that? Why, why did he, why did he? Go there. He should have just let it go, right? Uh, but he couldn't. He couldn't let it go. He wanted to justify himself. So there was something in him that he knew was not really fulfilling that second commandment, and he wants Jesus to justify it. You know, there, there's people he doesn't love. He, he thinks he has a loophole to get around this, and he can decide the meaning of the word neighbor, and if he can be the arbiter of what it means to be his neighbor, then, then he can decide who he gets to love and, and who he doesn't have to love. And, uh, you know, human hearts, we tend to look for loopholes, don't we? We want to know, hey, what's the exception? You know, the number of people over the years, can I tell you, who have come to me and said, you know, Pastor Paul, you just don't understand. There's this reason right here that the Bible doesn't really apply to my situation. I'm an exception. Can I tell you? You are not an exception. The Bible applies to your situation. It applies to everyone. And I think that what is happening here is that this guy is just so guilty. He's, he, he has such a guilty conscience that he can't help but ask Jesus to define neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this familiar story. A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's, he's attacked by robbers. He's stripped of his clothes. And they beat him up. And they went away, leaving him half dead. And, and so this guy's in rough shape, right? And it says that a priest came along and uh, saw him there, but crossed on the other side. And then a Levite came along. And saw him there, and he crossed on the other side as well. And uh, we don't know exactly why. I've heard a lot of speculation kind of read into the story. But Jesus doesn't really say why, and it is a parable. But the most important thing is that they pass by without helping the man. And going on, it says that a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where he was and saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured in oil, put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and... The next day, I uh, gave the innkeeper some money to, to take care of his needs and said he'd reimburse him uh, if they went over that. And, uh, and so as we look at this story, the players that Jesus chose 
would be absolutely shocking to most of his hearers. And, and they're important because, I mean, you have to understand, as Jesus made up this story, he could have just left them as un unidentified people. He could have just said, one guy came along and didn't help him, and then the second guy came along and didn't help him, and the third guy came along, and then he helped him. He could have said it that way, but he very deliberately chose these characters. He chose a priest and a Levite as the first two who passed by without showing love or pity. And, and remember, the thing that sparked this whole thing was the question, how can I inherit eternal life? And the idea is that the priest and the Levite would have been those that the hearers felt were closest to God. And Jesus is saying that as those who had the word of God, they should have acted on the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself and help the man. And then Jesus chose as the third man a Samaritan. And Samaritans, of course, were, were looked down on and often hated by the Jews. They were considered to be worthless dogs. And Jesus chooses to cast this person as the one who is merciful to the man, the one who fulfills the scripture to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and this would have been difficult for the hearers to swallow. He becomes the hero of the story. And, and so he goes on and to ask the expert, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And the expert in the law says to him, uh, well, the one who had mercy on him. I mean, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing. Go be like this Samaritan. Now, now, here is where I often see people kind of miss the point a little bit. Often, I'll see people um, talking about this passage, and they kind of make Jesus to be saying that we should love the Samaritans. We should love those who are different from us, right? And, uh, and all that's true. All that's true. But that's really not the point of what Jesus is saying here. The point that Jesus is making is that here is this Samaritan, and he comes across someone that he knows hates him. He knows that probably if the roles were reversed, the guy might just pass him by because he's a Samaritan. But he has compassion on him anyway. He loves him anyway. He loves the person who hates him. And Jesus says, go and do that. If you want to love your neighbor, to, to, then love him if he loves you, and love him if he hates you. Can I tell you, the ability to do that is not natural. I mean, it's something otherworldly. It's something supernatural. Something that comes from a power that's beyond us. Something that comes from the Holy Spirit of God in us. You know, the power of Jesus to unite people who would otherwise despise one another is amazing. Think about Jesus' disciples for a minute. One of Jesus' disciples, his name was Simon the Zealot. And if you know what a zealot was during, the, during those days, a zealot was a guy who believed in and practiced um, armed, violent resistance against the occupying Roman government. They would organize time where, they, where they'd, uh, where they'd uh, ambush, you know, Roman uh, uh, garrisons going out to do their work, ambush them. They're trying to throw out the Romans. Now, Matthew was another disciple. And it says Matthew was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors were people who worked with the Roman government. There were Jewish people who were working for the Roman government as collaborators. The government gave them power to collect taxes, and they could collect extra if they wanted to, more than their wages. 
and they were hated and despised by most all of the Jewish people, and especially by the zealots. In any other meeting, Simon probably would have slit Matthew's throat. But here, with Jesus, Jesus is able to bring a zealot and a tax collector together. Do you see what I'm getting about the power of Jesus to take people who would otherwise hate each other and bring them together? All right? It looks like you need another example. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Now, okay, I have some stuff in here. See what I got in here. Hey, what happened to my hat? There was a hat in here. It's on the first few. Oh, it's over there. How did it get way over there? All right, well, I'm going to get warm here, I think. But um, This is my um, Red Sox World Champions um, uh, World Series champions hat. Got right on, and this is a. Some of you like that. Some of you. How many of you? How many of you don't like me now? God says you got to love me if you want to go to heaven. <laughs> All right. So. Here we go. Yeah. So, oh, look at this here. See. All right. Now, a lot of you may know that um, there is a big rivalry. Been over a hundred years in the making between the Red Sox and the New York Yankees. Some of you know that. Oh, we got some New York Yankees fans here. All right. Well, I mean, this has been a big rivalry ever since they sold Babe Ruth to the to the Yankees in the early 1900s. You know, and uh, big rivalry. And you know, if you're a Yankee fan, I know you could probably put like 29 or 30 of these on to my one here. Hey, <coughs> 27. Okay. Well, it's actually three now for this service. And. Uh, um, I mean, and it's so bad that, I mean, uh, I just, uh, growing up in New England, I, there are some people in New England who believe that George Steinbrenner was the Antichrist. You know, I mean, and it's so bad. Now, this, this part's not funny. I mean, I remember once reading a story in the newspaper, a couple people, a uh, Red Sox fan and Yankees fan, somewhere in New England, came out of a bar arguing, and the Red Sox fan um, mowed him over with his car. That's, I mean, that's, okay, that's a... I don't know what to say about that. That's just awful, right? Uh, Red Sox zealot. Yeah, and uh, uh, terrible, right? And, uh, uh, but yet, God can take um, Red Sox fans and Yankees fans and do something special. <laughs> a lot of you think he's got a ball there. He's going to beat me with the ball. And, uh, you know, some of you last, uh, maybe you maybe even saw in the news this weekend, there was a big, huge brawl between the Red Sox and the Yankees in some games, right? But God is able to take this amen. and do this, right? And <laughs> Amen. Can I tell you, this man from before I came here loved me. Amen. Sent me emails saying, we want you to know we are praying for you. We're, we're interceding with God for you and praying for you and lifting you up. We amen. want to support you in every way from before the time I got here. You know, and I love this guy, and he's amazing. And so if God can do this, Amen. right, and do this, God can unite anyone. Amen. I want to give you this. He's given me this. This is Babe Ruth, first home run as a Boston Red Sox fan. Amen. This is yours because what? I love you. Oh, my goodness. Amen. This is, this is really Babe Ruth's. 
first home run. I don't know what to say. I am, I am, I, wow. Man, thank, wow, wow. Oh my goodness, you can, I think I see where the bat hit the ball here. So, oh my goodness, my brother, I, wow. I feel like, like David and I should pour the drink offering out or something, you know, wow. Let me, uh, oh my. I'm going to hold on to this for a minute. I'm going to preach the rest of the sermon with this in my hand. What an illustration. Oh my goodness. Bible says to love your enemy. Love those who hate you, right? Wait a minute, this isn't the funny part. <laughs> That's not the funny part. I'm moving on now. Wow. Unless, does my hair look funny from the hat? Okay, okay, well. Okay. Let me show you what's going on when you do this. In Luke chapter 6, verses 27 uh, through 36, Jesus is talking about the same thing. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you to one cheek, turn them to the other. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt and uh, uh, give to everyone who asks uh, and don't demand it back and do to others as you would have them do to you. And then he asks this question, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those... Um, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And he says that when you do this, there are two things that will happen. First, he says, then your reward will be great. God will greatly reward those who express love towards those who don't love them who treat them poorly. And I, and I think the idea is this, because God knows that it takes a great amount of sacrifice, a great amount of selflessness to act this way. And so he says, the reward is great. You know, and I, and I know it can be difficult sometimes, you know, if someone's not treating you right, to treat them with love. It can be, it can be difficult. And, you know, if you want, you can go treat them poorly as well and, uh, and, and treat them... And, and, uh, in, a, in a bad way as well, and you'll have your reward. That's it. You don't get a reward from God. But God says if you'll love them, you'll get a great reward. And the next thing that happens is this. He says, you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He's saying that when you act this way, you are acting like your Father in heaven. You're acting like your Savior Jesus. Love. Love those who are inside the body of Christ. Love those who are outside the body of Christ. Love everyone. Love your neighbor as yourself. I guess that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? And so as we conclude these two messages on loving God and loving people, here's what I hope that you're coming away with. Here's what I hope that you're getting. A, a passion to love God with all your heart with all your soul and all your mind, 
and all your strength. And a drive to love the body of Christ, to see others, uh, other people who Jesus valued enough to die for, a motivation to love those outside the body of Christ and to love those inside the body of Christ. And I hope that Lancaster First Assembly becomes known as that place where people are full of love. I want to be known for that because God wants us to be known for that. Because whatever else we do, whatever else we accomplish, the Bible says if we don't have love, that it profits us nothing. So would you all please stand with me? As we move into our response time this morning, here's what, here's what I'm wondering, here's what I'm asking. As we're going to begin to sing this song for the sake of the world.